Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Emma John, author, journalist and all-round bluegrass novice. And I'm Patrick McGonigal, fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. Today we're talking about Second Generation Bluegrass, which was recorded by the future country superstars Ricky Skaggs and Keith Whitley when they were still only teenagers. At 15 years old, these two prodigies had been taken on by Ralph Stanley, who invited them to join his band The Clinch Mountain Boys, and you can hear their frankly eerie ability to emulate the style of Ralph and his late brother Carter, who were known to all as the Stanley Brothers, throughout this album. And... Ralph Stanley has always sounded like he's 90 years old, so they sound like people that are twice their age or three times their age, but the people that they're emulating sound like they're 90. It's, it's, it's amazing. Wow, so if you really kind of factor in the math, so we're basically saying that in this, uh, in this record, which was recorded in June 1971, Ricky Skaggs sounds like he's 140 years old. <laughs> or older. He's, he's, he's like a tortoise, I mean, or, a, or a sea turtle. So uh, let's explain the connection with the Stanley Brothers to start off with. The Stanley Brothers are one of the bluegrass legends of all time. They, they were pretty much second only to Bill Monroe uh, in terms of their importance to early bluegrass. And they really also were hugely important in the development of the bluegrass vocal style, the, the high lonesome tenor and the really incredible blend of, of vocals that Bluegrass is now so famous for. Um, so for two 15-year-olds who at that point were primarily singers, to be so uh, respected and taken under the wing of Ralph Stanley says a lot, I think, about, about where Keith Whitley and Ricky Skaggs were at at such a young age. They, uh, they ended up in Ralph Stanley's band in 1970, um, they had uh, an extraordinary story. It, it's a kind of, it's almost a kind of stars in your eyes story uh, of how they ended up in the Clinch Mountain Boys Band, which was that uh, the, the pair of them were asked to essentially stand in for Ra Ralph Stanley uh, when he was late for a gig. And it was a gig near their hometown and they happened to have their instruments in the car and uh, the manager of the place was desperately looking around uh, for, for something that he could entertain the crowd with until Ralph Stanley arrived. So, so the pair of them stood up and played Ralph Stanley's songs. And, and Ralph Stanley then wanders into the bar and, and hears them singing before he sees them and assumes for a moment that it's actually the Stanley brothers playing over the bar's stereo. And then uh, apparently he went, Ralph Stanley went and then sat in the front row and, and hurled requests at young Keith and Ricky while they continued to play with Ralph Stanley sitting there. They were pretty much hired. I don't know whether it was that week, that month. They were basically on tour with Ralph Stanley pretty soon after that. Yeah, they, uh, they, they hit the road young and, and they really, they traveled all around the world. Uh, with Ralph. Um, all around the world which, or all around America? Well, well, Keith Whitley 
traveled all around the world with Ralph. I don't know if, if they traveled all around the world at 15, but I know that Keith, at, as a teenager, was traveling to Japan with the Clinch Mountain Boys, and, and uh, you know, it, it was definitely an important moment for both of them. It was actually the second record that Keith and Ricky uh, had recorded in within six months, uh, the first being... Uh, the the very prosaically titled A Tribute to the Stanley Brothers, which was exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, it was an album that was all Stanley Brothers songs because that was what they loved and that was what they did well. Um, this one still has a lot of Stanley Brothers songs on it. It has Ralph Stanley himself on it. Uh, it has Jack Cook playing the bass. Jack Cook, of course, played with, uh, with Ralph Stanley for years and was himself a band leader uh, in... For bluegrass styles, he, he actually sounds a lot like uh, a lot like Ralph when he sings. Uh, and then, of course, Curly Ray Klein plays fiddle all over the record. Uh, if it's if it's not Ricky playing, it's Curly Ray playing. And and Curly Ray played with uh, the Stanley Brothers and and later with Ralph and the Clinch Mountain Boys. So it's it's not a direct tribute to the Stanley Brothers, but it's the next best thing. It's the, in their style. There are still seven songs that Stanley Brothers uh, <coughs> recorded back in the day uh, that are on this but then th- there are some other there are some other really interesting uh, tunes that we'll get into i i wanted to just say that uh, i first listened to this on a on a drive with you actually yep yep uh, returning from a festival and i remember as you put this on and started raving about this record and how much you wanted us to talk about it uh, feeling really underwhelmed i'm going to admit I don't know if you could tell that at the time, but I, I, I wasn't, it, it's quite a, it felt like quite a brief record. It felt like it was over quite soon. Now that I've listened to it a lot more times, but also now that I've researched it uh, and fa- found out about all the different tracks and tunes and uh, things that are going on uh, behind the stories, I am completely fascinated by this record. To me, it's, it's definitely in my top three, if not my favourite kind of bluegrass bluegrass record and what i mean by that is just it's a traditional record but it's it's in my top three for sure mostly for the singing the singing on this record is to me absolutely standout well let's start with the singing the very first track is don't cheat in our hometown uh which Mm -hmm. uh you know a classic uh song recorded by stanley brothers um and what is i think amazing about listening to this is the emotion that is in this song. I would say if Flat and Scruggs were the ultimate entertainers of bluegrass, then the Stanley Brothers were the ultimate emoters in bluegrass. Definitely, yeah. Uh, this is, what's, this is what uh, Ricky Skaggs and Keith Whitley have completely captured uh, to the point of, you know, it's beyond imitation. It's, um, it's perfect... Uh, re- replication of, of that mm-hmm. of that feeling and that character which again I come back to it they were 15 years old how on earth did they know how to to sound like somebody who's who's being cheated on uh, by his girlfriend mm. slash wife I, I it's amazing right. to me that they uh, can it's... get that across be so expressive tonight my heart is beating And my head is bowed 
You've been seen with my best friend on the other side of town. I don't mind this waiting, don't mind this running around. But if you're gonna cheat on me, don't cheat in our hometown. You really get this feeling like that they're losers. I, isn't that a terrible thing to say? But that's <laughs> that's how I feel about this song. Is that you know, this, oh, yeah. this great kind of like sadness but like pitiable sadness yeah this singer. i agree you spend all your pastime making me a clown he's he's the, the sentiment of that song of just like i guess i'll take it it's kind of eeyore-ish it's like oh well you know if you can cheat on me just don't <laughs> cheat in our hometown I would argue that neither of them had, uh, you know, experienced the, the the sentiment of the song. At least I hope not at 15. But, you know, uh, I think the reason that they're able to so effectively transmit the depth of this music is because they both grew up in such musical homes. Um, Keith's, both of Keith's parents played music. His parents, Elmore and Faye Whitley, um, and his mother played piano and organ and banjo and guitar and taught uh, he and his siblings how to play guitar and, and sing traditional songs. Keith Whitley's grandfather was a banjo player and taught uh, both he and his brother how to play banjo, and that sparked their interest in bluegrass. And Keith was extremely interested in, in country singers from a very young age. His, his siblings, his older siblings and his mother talk about how at as an infant, you know, almost as as young as he could could just start talking, he would sing, and he was singing along with with his siblings, and uh, and he loved Lefty Frizzell and George Jones, and apparently by the age of four or five, the only thing he wanted to do and the only thing he wanted to think about was singing country music. So already at fifteen, he's got all these elements: this pure voice, this incredible control. Uh, this tone, it's all there. The timing, he really had it worked out. Uh, so we've talked about Keith's musical upbringing. We should definitely talk about Ricky's musical upbringing because uh, Ricky's family is actually kind of featured on this on this record. Um, one of the songs is written by his mum, uh, Dorothy Skaggs, wrote All I Ever Loved Was You. Uh, and there's also a fiddle tune on, on this record called Son of Hobart, because Ricky's dad was called Hobart. Uh, Ricky's dad is a really interesting character. I mean, both his mum and his dad are, are, are really interesting characters. Did you know that Ricky uh, essentially ended up playing mandolin and singing because Ricky's dad, Hobart, used to love singing and playing music with his brother, and his brother was killed in World War Two, And after his brother after he lost his brother who by the way apparently was awarded a purple heart um for for his bravery um in which he was killed on the island of guam uh his dad was really brokenhearted and and really wanted somebody to to sing and play music with and that turned out to be ricky his mum uh sang as well and she wrote songs um, she apparently, Ricky says, uh, she because his dad was a welder and was away from home on, on jobs a lot. 
so she wrote a lot of love songs because she missed Hobart so much. And All I Ever Loved Was You um, is one of those. the moment that it became one of my my favorite records of all time was when I was driving uh, just north of San Francisco in a rental van by myself and I put this record on and I was listening to it and I was really into it and this track in particular came on and it's a beautiful violin or fiddle kickoff Curly Ray Klein plays a little turnaround and then they they immediately launch into the chorus which is a beautiful chorus and their their vocals are as always stunning and perfectly locked in but curly ray on the fiddle weaves through the the opening harmonies unbelievably beautifully and really acts as this third voice that's kind of improvising and and dancing around the original melody and i remember listening to that and it caught my attention and i restarted the track several times on this drive because I just had to hear that over and over again. Uh, it's some of the most soulful fiddle playing uh, I can think of in, in of all of the recordings. playing at the beginning of Paul Monroe and is that Curly Ray Klein or is it Ricky Skaggs I I have no idea I wouldn't know how to tell the difference I don't know who it is but with with Paul Monroe there's mandolin beautiful mandolin all over it and I would so I would imagine that it must be Curly Ray just by virtue of this track having incredible mandolin on it I wrote a note about, just like you were saying about the intro to All I Ever Loved Was You, I wrote a note about the intro to Paul Monroe, and I, I just wrote crunchy. <laughs> crunchy. That's the only way I could think of to describe it. It's got these funny, funny fifths that sound yeah. crunchy to my ear. Just because he's lazy, sets around with the blue. They ride my no off without his shoes. He always was lazy, and he never liked to work. But nice feet the bird as he runs through the dirt. I actually don't really understand what Paul Monroe is about. Apart from it being about a lazy man, I'm not really sure what the uh, uh, what, what the conclusion or, or what the moral of the story we're supposed to take away is. And also there's this weird line about how because now he's been run off without his shoes, his family's eligible for welfare? It's really bizarre. It makes me think... So it was written by Roy Lee Centers, who uh, was obviously um, lead singer for Ralph Stanley at the time, lead vocalist for Ralph Stanley yeah. at the time, and who is playing guitar, uh, acoustic guitar on this record. And uh, I, it's such an odd 
song that it makes me think that that he had someone in mind when he was writing about it. There was some very specific yeah. situation yeah. in his life that he was writing about. It's like one big inside joke. I agree. I agree. But the other element of it that I think is kind of inside joke-ish, like you say, is that it's not about Bill Monroe, but Ricky Skaggs is sure playing a whole lot of Monroe licks. And you hear the line, just like Monroe, and then you hear like a perfect Monroe mandolin lick. And there's a beautiful mandolin break on it. And the mandolin break is all Monroe stuff. mandolin playing can we mention daybreak and dixie i i would love your musician's view on this uh, particular rendition of this of this uh, of this tune because it sounds to me like um the mandolin is trying uh to to push the beat all the time in a in a way that's kind of like quite showy is that is that true when I think of Ricky Skaggs' mandolin playing, one of the things that I think of is, is how he is so incredibly able to sit right on the front of the beat all the time. And uh, his chop. Um, so in my band, in the Lonely Heartstring Band, uh, our mandolin player, Maddie, loves to play the mandolin chop right on the front of the beat. And always, if we're kind of saying, we think you're, uh, you're pushing it a little much or you're rushing or something, Ricky Skaggs recordings start popping out of the phones during rehearsal to, to as a display of, yeah, well, check out Ricky's drive and look how far ahead he puts it on the beat. And listening to Daybreak and Dixie this morning, my notes right here have Ricky is playing on the front of the beat. So at 15 years old, he has decided he's he's made he's made that call already in his career and his musical style to put that that sound. And I think it drives the tune incredibly. whether this is the track where he felt he got to really show off his skills and 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 that that was probably like quite important to him because he was playing in a band where you didn't particularly show off instrumentally he was playing Mm -hmm. for this you know mountain music legend ralph stanley who wanted to make sure that everything was subject to the singing and or subservient to the singing rather and and Ricky has definitely written in his uh, in his autobiography, Kentucky Traveler, about how he, you know, he was a young he was a young kid. He was like learning these showy, fast paced licks, and Ralph would sometimes have to turn him down or rein him in, I guess. Yeah. So the other place where Ricky really gets to strut his stuff is Son of Hobart, but on that track he's playing fiddle, um, and he's he plays beautifully and and. You know, but I think this it's is a this very is different vibe. The, the, very son, different the, vibe. The fiddle tune, Son of Hobart, is incredibly, it's a very different groove. It's a much more old timey vibe. And um, yeah. uh, I mean, the, the entire tune is only played over one one single yeah. chord, yeah. which is yeah. unusual even in old time, I would say. <laughs> 
writes again he he does write about how um he was incredibly uh influenced by a 70 year old old time fiddler um called mm. let me just check this guy's name i think he was called sam santford but i guess you know if i was doing it with the real southern accent it would be samford samford kelly um and uh, and this guy was really really important to him he he was a kind of um a, a very old school old time fiddler uh, to, the, to right. the extent that like you didn't know when he was going to turn up in town he sort of came and went and he didn't have a phone so people couldn't particularly get in touch with him and he would just occasionally kind of rock up in a car and and um, wow. play music with and for Ricky and there's a great quote um, which I think explains a lot um, and it ties a lot of this stuff together that Ricky writes in his uh, book he says the lonely sound I heard in Sanford's music helped me understand why I was drawn to the music of the Stanley Brothers. They too had that high lonesome old stank from the Virginia Hills. Oh, love it! The high lonesome stank. Got to have a lot of stank. Well, it's like it's like, and some people talk about when you scrunch up your face when you're really getting into the music. If you you're playing and you scrunch up your face, they call that the stank face. So, stank That's great. is everywhere. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, while we're on Son of Hobart, can we go back to Ricky's dad? Because I feel like there's one other let's thing. Let's go back. I, let's talk about let's Ricky's dad some more because yep. uh, quite apart from his relationship with Uncle Oakle, who was uh, who was the brother who died in the war, um, Ricky's dad Hobart had, had an incredibly important, uh, what's the word, accelerating effect on Ricky's career. I mean, they he, he was the one who who he practiced long, long hours into the night with. Ricky grew up in eastern Kentucky uh, in a town called Brushy Creek in in Lawrence County. Uh, But they moved around a little bit for his dad's work. And his dad actually took a job in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, uh, so that they could be near Nashville and near the Opry um, and and see if there were opportunities. Also, I think uh, Hobart and, and probably both of his parents were taking Ricky to shows all the time and Ricky really loved going to bluegrass shows and I think that was a big part of you know it was like a, it's almost like a sports parent today just like driving the long hours to expose the kids to this great music and as a result as you said he got to play with the Stanley Brothers he you know a formative moment that he mentions all the time from stage and in interviews is, is sitting in with Bill Monroe as a very young guy and I think his dad always said take your instrument take your instrument and we'll go to lots of shows and uh i would say that the strategy worked you say like a a sports parent that's exactly what i thought of um because i read that uh, he didn't even let um he didn't even let ricky play any sports uh, Ricky wasn't allowed to play sports, especially baseball, uh, all the things that the other kids were playing because he was too worried about him hurting his hands, you know, potentially breaking a finger. It made me think of, I've just read a biography of Tiger Woods and um, Earl Woods, uh, you know, was the exact same with Tiger when he was young. Yep. He was absolutely not allowed to play 
mm. with the kids in the schoolyard. He wasn't allowed to do any of the things the, the other kids were doing because it was just too dangerous. You know, they were so set on him having this golfing career. So Ricky ended up moving back to eastern Kentucky. The family ended up moving back there. It's kind of amazing, uh, given how much Ricky was involved in music and, and how much his dad had him playing all over the place that he actually had never met Keith Whitley before mm-hmm. that that um you know that that this this kid who was exactly the same age as him to 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 the point that they were born in the same month yeah. um uh, and who was equally in love with the Stanley brothers and living 30 miles down the road uh they they They'd never heard of each other. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't connect on Facebook. I, I would have assumed that Facebook would have, you know, put them together and said, suggested that they be friends. But I guess Facebook dropped the ball back in the 60s. In the end, Ricky and Keith met at a talent show when they were about 14 years old. And we got to sit down with Ricky at the IBMA conference in Raleigh. So the first thing we asked him was for his memories of that first meeting. We ended up in the boys' locker room downstairs, you know, where our instrument cases were, you know, it's like a little green room of some sort, you know, so we uh, we ended up down there, and there was nobody there but just me and him, and we started talking, you know, about, oh, who do you listen to, you know, and, well, I, I listen to the Stanley Brothers. Well, who do you like? I said, well, I love the Stanley Brothers, too. Mm-hmm. Do you know this one? And here we, you know, we started singing, and we stood there and sang for maybe 30 40 minutes maybe an hour and um, so the next weekend I, I had it I invited Keith to come and uh, just come over and visit at our house for dinner and bring bring his guitar and his brother Dwight came brought the banjo and so me and my dad and him and Dwight you know played and and we just had the best time and and we became we became soul brothers you know right then at, at 15 years old and just bonded a relationship, you know, and um, and so much of it was built around the Stanley Brothers. Do you remember when you first heard the Stanley Brothers and what it was you first listened to? I was hearing Stanley Brothers songs, I think, before I actually heard the Stanley Brothers. Uh, I used to listen to my mother and dad sing Rank Stranger in church. And so I just kind of thought mom wrote it, you know, because mom wrote songs. And, uh, you know, so I heard the radio one day and I heard the Stanley Brothers saying, I said, Mom, they're doing your song. <laughs> she said, no, honey, we, we're doing, we do their song. That, they, they were the ones that come out with it. I wandered again to my home in the mountain where a new surly dawn My grandfather, my mother's dad, uh, was having some health issues, and he lived up in Ohio. He had moved up there from Kentucky, and was a he was a night watchman on a, ho- a really expensive horse farm that raised thoroughbreds. You know, one of them won a Kentucky Derby one year. But while we were in Columbus, we would go downtown to a place called the Astro Inn, and it was just a beer joint, a hillbilly beer joint. You know, it held about maybe 50, 75 people. You know, we went to see Earl Taylor one night. 
And uh, so before we got there, we got downtown a little early, and uh, there was a record shop down in, in Columbus. And so we went in, me and my dad went in there, and I had no idea about these reissue records that had come out in the 70s uh, of things that they'd cut in the 40s and the 50s. They had Mercury stuff, and they had the Columbia stuff, and they had the richer tone stuff. Anyway, I got to going through those records, and I, I said, Dad, can we get this one? You know, yeah, we, we can get this. It was not four, four bucks, four or five bucks, you know. And um, then we'd look at another one. There would be a, all the, the Columbia collection of Stanley Brothers. Said, can we get this one too, you know? And so we ended up, I, I saw my dad, bless his heart, my dad pulled out a folded $100 bill that he had hidden in his wallet that just for like emergencies, you know. And so he pulled that $100 bill out and broke it, you know, just to pay for for those records. But those records, yeah. you know, they did something to me. Ralph, I, I loved Mr. Monroe's music, you know, I always loved his music and his man on playing especially. But there was something, there was something so ancient sounding in the Stanley Brothers. There was, uh, there was, um, the spirit of the music was just, I mean, it was, it, it would grab you, those songs, and, and the, the, the way they sang, uh, way Ralph sang tenor to Carter's lead, you know. Everybody I met, and then Carter passes. No mother. And so one night we had heard we'd heard that uh, that uh, that Ralph had hired a new lead singer. They said, "Oh, he sounds just like Carter," you know. And it was Roy Lee Centers, you know, and uh, and that he did. I'm telling you. So anyway, we we begged Dad, Dad, please take us over to this beer joint over in Fort Gay, West Virginia, which is right right across from Louisa, Kentucky, where I was going to high school, and. Uh, and here we got, you know, we couldn't have got in there without my dad, you know. You know, we were 14, 15, I mean 15. And so we go to see Ralph play with this new singer. And, um, well, we were sitting there kind of waiting for Ralph to get there. And the um, place was filling up, you know. The guy said, Ralph called, and they've had bus trouble, and they're going to be half hour, 40 minutes before they can get here. I said, would you boys like get up and do some, do some songs and so we said yeah and so we get up well the only songs we know is Stanley Brothers songs <laughs> but because of those records that I had bought in Columbus a year or so before that I mean Keith had learned so many of those those old songs because Ralph and Carter was kids then they were just in their their early early 20s when they recorded those first things and so seeing their pictures on the front cover it's like they weren't that much older than what we were so Ralph comes walking in here comes Ralph you know my hero I remember what he had on he had on a pair of black pants and boots and he had a leather jacket I mean, I was looking at the audience, but, but he was right there, and I couldn't turn far enough. <laughs> you know, I'd have to do that and to not see Ralph. You know, it was like, oh, my God, he's listening to everything we're doing, and I'm singing his parts. I'm singing the tenor part. Oh, my God, don't let me mess up. And he said, uh, I just got to tell you, 
it really blesses my heart to see young kids really liking what we do, you know, what we, me and Carter did, and keeping that alive, you know. Well, our hearts about burst inside us. We were so happy. It's lucky that he didn't walk in and say, you've just ruined our set list. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for playing every song that we do. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but anyway, that just led to a really, really great uh, relationship with Ralph. Then as soon as we got out of high school, we joined his band full time and worked uh, for two years in the band. And then we did the second generation bluegrass record. And uh, that was for Rebel. And uh, that was a pretty big deal to have a color picture on the front cover. Yeah. You know, yeah. wow. artwork for this uh for this well yes i there's i've looked at a few uh there's the the one with them in the pink shirts that's that's the one i was thinking of yeah i think (laughs) it's just a reminder of sort of how adorably young they are like that they just they they still very 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 much look like kids Keith Whitley uh, looks like an absolute choir boy. And, <laughs> and he doesn't uh, know what to do with his hands. Doesn't his know hands what to look do like with they're his fidgeting hands. with his pants. <laughs> uh, Ricky Skaggs has the biggest fringe that you have ever seen. Another track that I love is uh, Those Two Blue Eyes. Um, to me, I feel like Those Two Blue Eyes is a moment when they really do their best Carter and Ralph impersonation. Told me that your love was true, just like a fool I trusted you. Those two blue eyes I love so well. What they done to me, no one can tell. Do you happen to know who wrote it? I, can, I don't know who you. wrote it. I can tell you who wrote who it. Who wrote this it? Is, this is one of the many rabbit holes I ended up going down. Those Two Blue Eyes and Sea of Regret were both written uh, by the Sloas Brothers. I hope I'm saying that right. It's S-L-O-A-S. And they were a band from Isonville, Eastern Kentucky, Um I'm probably getting all of these pronunciations wrong because I'm just saying them in a British voice. Uh, But the Slows brothers are this fascinating family. Um, There were six brothers who who all played instruments and and a sister who wrote songs. Um, Their parents were lost to them um, within, uh, I think, a month of each other. They both both caught measles and died of measles. Wow. um, Music was was already important to the family and I think after they left they lost their parents uh, it was a, an even bigger bond however um, you know they all had families and they all needed to uh, they all needed to make a living so while they did write songs and sell songs um, they did not uh, you know make it as a band themselves they, they just used to kind of play locally but they were kind of local legends the Slows Brothers and um, these are two of their songs, and and uh, their even their progeny ended up being um, mm. being uh, significant musicians as well. There was a son called David Slose uh, who ended up 
being Tammy Wynette's lead guitarist. Wow. From the early 80s until her death, apparently. And uh, there was another son, Jimmy, who played with Megadeth. Wow, I wonder if they ever collaborated. My deceitful heart keeps changing its mind. Hurting everyone but me. Each time There's another interesting uh, songwriter on this record. Uh, I wonder if you know who wrote My Deceitful Heart. I don't. Because I love I, that. It's one of, one of my favorites on the record. It's definitely it? one of my favorites. That's oh, interesting yeah. because I feel like it's in a very slightly different style to everything else. Mm. It, it kind of reminds me of, of a more... It, when I heard it for the first time, it made me think of my grandma. It made me think of the crooner records that, that she used to listen to. And um, it, it, it just feels very slightly different um, to everything else to me. And when I found out who wrote it, um, I thought... Well, maybe this is why it it was written uh, by a soul singer uh, called Frederick Earl Long, um, whose whose nickname was Shorty. He was called Shorty Long, uh, and he short long. I love that name. Yeah, Shorty Long. Shorty Long. Um, he was from Birmingham, Alabama, African American. Uh, moved to Motown when he was twenty three, and. He had been there writing, performing, and producing uh, uh, in Detroit for six years when he died in a boat crash on the Detroit River. And um, wow. Stevie Wonder apparently played harmonica at his funeral, and that very harmonica is now buried with Shorty. Uh, yeah. Shorty also wrote another Stanley Brothers song. He wrote... Um, String, Eraser, and Blotter. Oh, I don't know that song. It sounds like a stationary song. It does sound like a stationary song. My fickle heart longs to be free. There's one track we haven't mentioned, which is Dream of a Miner's Child, mm-hmm. uh, which is this sort of sad little story. Sad? I mean, it might be happy. It's... We. We don't know it's what the ending weird. is. It's the, Daddy, little... don't go to the mines today, for dreams have so often come true. It's a good one. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a kind of like potentially quite creepy story of a child who seems to have ESP and thinks that's, that... That's a, that's a technical way to put it. <laughs> that's a technical way to put it. And she thinks something catastrophic is about the, the to The child, by the way, is played by Haley Joel Osment and the father is played by Bruce Willis. <laughs> I think we established it's it's a female child. Oh right, right. So it's probably played played by Dakota Fanning or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and anyway, she has she's had a vision or a dream that something catastrophic is going to happen to at the mine. So she doesn't want her dad to go to work today. We actually never find out in this song whether he goes or not. Mm, very mm. M Night Shyamalan. Uh, who knows if there's a twist in the tale. But the reason it's interesting that this song is on there is because when Ricky was working for Ralph, there was a day when his mum woke up and said you, he was supposed to be going to Oklahoma on a gig with Ralph. And his mum woke up having had a dream that they 
had all been in the bus and they'd had a terrible crash. And his mum, Dorothy, songwriter Dorothy, said, Ricky, I don't want you going to Oklahoma because I've basically had a premonition and you you died in in a crash. And Ricky phoned Ralph Stanley and said, Ralph, can't come to the gig today. My mum's had a dream and she she's she doesn't want me to go because uh, she thinks I'm going to die in a car crash. And Ralph Stanley said, sure, no problem. Wow. Ralph Stanley. Ricky, can... don't go <laughs> to the gig today, for dreams have so often come true. So Ricky did not go to Oklahoma. And when they came back from that gig, uh, Ricky asked Roy, Roy Lee Centers if anything unusual had happened. And he was told, well, actually, uh, when we were driving, uh, a box fell off a truck in front of us and we had to swerve all over the road to avoid it. Oh, daddy, don't go to mines today. For dreams have so often come true. Oh, daddy, dear daddy, please don't go away. I never could live without you. I do find it interesting that on this record, there's not a single track where, where Ricky sings lead. At this point, Ricky is exclusively the just the tenor singer for, for Keith, um, which is just, you know, it's just a, a, maybe it's not even noteworthy at this point, but you know, Ricky is such an incredible singer and such a, he went on to have a career as a phenomenal lead singer. And they didn't end up in a band together, even though they talked about it a lot, you know, during mm-hmm. those two years that they were um, uh, with Ralph. Um, but obviously they'd, they'd been playing together even before then and uh, continued playing together after. But, um, but actually what happened was that Keith uh, went off quite suddenly to be in a band with Carl Jackson. And mm. Jimmy Goodrow. And I think Ricky was quite uh, taken by surprise and actually a little bit hurt. Ah, uh, that makes sense. And that, that was it. They never really um, they never no. played together professionally again in that sense. Yeah, and Keith went back and played for, for several years with, with Ralph. Uh, without Ricky in the band, and then went on, and they were both making country music in Nashville all through the '80s, and both doing very well at it. And uh, Ricky never... was always a little bit further ahead, it feels like, than yeah. than Keith, because Ricky actually went off. Um, I mean, he he went and joined the Country Gentleman, and and then he yeah. joined JD Crow and New South, and yeah. uh, and then Keith ended up with JD Crow. What a year! Just a, a few year years later, Ricky had yeah. left. Yeah. So, so, but it feels like Ricky was always, you know, maybe a, you know, maybe a, a step or two ahead in terms yeah. of career development. Yeah, and and yeah, a step or two ahead in terms of career development, but also Keith Whitley, even though he only lived to be thirty-four, had a career that was massively impactful, and and just like Ricky is one of the biggest influences in bluegrass music and country music as well. I think it's safe to say that Keith Whitley, in terms of influence in country music, is as important as George Jones or or Ray Price or any of the great 
singers and country music. There's a there's a Keith Whitley Carter oh, yeah. Stanley parallel, which is the sad, the sad yeah. story of alcoholism and and the toll it took on, on both of them. Um, Carter had obviously died a few years before Keith joined Ralph, um, mm-hmm. and the Clinch Mountain Boys. But um, the the same, uh, the same disease ended up taking his life really. Yeah, and and I think for probably a lot of the same reasons, almost uh, eerily similar in terms of touring with R- Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys as a teenager traveling around the world and and being handed, I'm sure, a lot of drinks. And also, you know, ha- as a teenager dealing with the pressure of performing every night like that with, with such a high-level band and being so young and the dangers of all that definitely caught up with Keith and despite his best efforts throughout the remainder of his life to try to quit drinking he he suffered greatly from the alcohol addiction and uh, ended up dying of alcohol poisoning at 34 years old the love that you promised to me on that day is now gone forever like the vows that you made my heart is so empty my final question is was it ever hard to listen to the records that you made with Keith after you lost him so oh I, I repassed um, yeah it, it it's yeah it's, it's kind of hard you know um, sometimes I hear, I'll hear, I'm no stranger to the rain, mm-hmm. come on the radio, and I just, I turn it out, I turn it to another station sometimes. And it's no disrespect to him, but it's just like, it's just hard to listen to. I'm no stranger to the rain, I'm a friend of thunder. Friend, is it any wonder lightning strikes me? I fought with the devil, got down on his level, but I never gave in, so he gave up on me. I'm no stranger to you know, and um, it was a tragic, senseless thing. Yeah. He didn't have to go out that way, you know. And uh, but it's just—I mean, there's—I just know that no one, no one can go so deep that God can't find them. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Did it um, affect your? You were said you were soul brothers with Keith. Did it affect your relationship as you grew older? You know. Um, what was so crazy, and I told this at, at Keith's funeral, Lori wanted me to kind of do the service. And I, t- uh, I said, you know, this is really hard for me to stand here and know that uh, that alcohol poisoning is what, what took Keith. And I said, I, re- I remember one time we were driving home from a, from being, be, got, we got off the road with Ralph and and we we stopped and bought you know some little little half pints of of liquor you know 
And I said, uh, I remember getting so drunk on the way to, to Roy Lee's house in, in, uh, in Jackson, Kentucky. I said, I was so drunk that I couldn't go home. I knew my mom and dad would just be, I wouldn't be able to go back out anymore, be so suspended. And, and uh, so I said, we got a hotel room and Keith held my head while I was puking my guts up. <laughs> I said, so he was here helping me and I couldn't help him. I loved him dearly. We were, we were such, we were great friends. I remember the last time I saw him, uh, we were at the Opry, and Lori uh, was, they were, he and, he and Lori and the band was walking toward the stage, and I was in the green room at the Opry, and uh, sat down, we just started talking about old, old times, old days, and, and we were laughing about Curly Ray and just crazy things we did, you know, with, with Ralph, and so, anyway, he, he went on out there and he just kind of turned and had those beautiful eyes, you know, and um, and uh, it was a really hard time, really hard time. And Nashville mourned, you know, he was such a bright up and coming star, you know, and but he influenced so many people with his singing. You, you hear all these young country singers, I, not so much now because they're not singing real country, but <laughs> But, uh, but you know, there at that during at that time, I'd say from you know eighty nine, eighty eight, eighty nine through the through the nineties, up in the early two thousands, uh, there were so many young artists that were huge fans of Keith that you know singing like him. But it's a it's a tragedy. But you know, I loved him so much and uh, miss him a lot. He. Uh, It'd be great to see what he would have become, you know. So that's the end of the podcast. And we obviously have to thank Ricky Skaggs very, very much. Uh, Superstar of Bluegrass. chatting away to us and um, sharing some really intimate, honest, emotional moments, really. And and taking a, a, a big chunk of his time to hang out with us. And he played my fiddle for us. He actually played Son of Hobart on my fiddle at the end of the interview. So here to play you out of the podcast is Ricky Skaggs, old-time fiddler. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Spotify to keep up with all the latest episodes. Yeah.